Hello, hello, it's the 80s Rewind Show podcast with me, Rob, the face of Radio Burgess, and welcome along to today's show. Did you like my swanky new intro? I made that the other day. It's kind of cool, isn't it? I put some of the guests in there that we spoke to. If you're a first-time listener and you heard some names in there you like the sound of, pop onto the website and you can check out all the other episodes with the guests that mentioned their name at the start. Um, I've got to say a massive thank you to everybody that has um, liked and subscribed on Apple Podcasts and left a review. Uh, if you can and you're on there, leave me one. That'd be absolutely great and I'll owe you a cup of tea. So how are you doing? hope you're doing well out there. Um, I've got a gift for you. I have. I've got a gift. So if you go over to the website, www.the80spod.com. I like that. I'll press it again. www.the80spod.com. So if you go over to the website, um, the band Fiction Factory sent me a track which has never been released before. So they released a track which was on their album, but only on the cassette. I guess that's because at the time uh, in 1984, on a cassette you had more space than you did on a record. Uh, So they must have put it on the cassette. Uh, Anyway, it was released on there um, and it was never released on vinyl. And the lads re-recorded it this year. They did a new version of the track, Rise and Fall, and they sent it to me. Bless them, love them, and I'll put it on the website. You've got to hear it. It's fantastic. Now, on to today's guest. I've got the wonderful, wonderful Ed Tudor Pohl from Tempole Tudor um, as a guest on today. He was absolutely magic to talk to. Um, he's writing a book, um, so which is coming out quite soon, hopefully. So we didn't talk much about the history of the band or the Sex Pistols and things on those topics because it's going to be in the book and we didn't want to spoil it. I really hope he does an audio book version because I'd love to hear it, especially with Ed's quirkiness. It'd sound incredible. Uh, what can I say? Ed's a punk through and through, and he's a delight to talk to, and a wonderful man. So, um, yeah, let's get to it. Did your parents like music? Was there a lot around the house growing up? No. Um, well, not until I was eight, really, and then that was 1960, just 63, and then I became aware of the Beatles around my stepmums because she always had the telly on, so... It was the Beatles and then and the Stones came a few months later and that was it. Wow. I was just hooked on the pop music at the time and and the Beatles and the Stones and watching the pops. So, yes, I grew up loving the, the, the three-minute pop single and I was fascinated. As, I, I got it immediately, you know, as, as a kid. I thought it, it's, it's a competition between who, who comes up with the best tune. And I loved that. Um, and I thought to myself, I bet I could write a tune. I was deeply convinced, and I, we watched Top of the Pops all the time, and I've always loved pop music. The arrangement of notes, what is it that makes one particular single a hit more than the other one, you know? Yeah, yeah. So even eight years old, you were getting thinking about writing songs, like music hit you that hard? Well, yeah, it, what happened was The House of the Rising Sun had shot to number one. I, I only just started watching Top of the Pops. Mm. The DJ was so excited, he said, last week it was nowhere, now it's number one. The House of the Rising Sun. And so, but when I saw it, and then they played it, I, and it's, it's a fantastic song, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I thought, whoa, I know why that's number one, because it 
there's something in the tune when it's a, a, your favourite song. It moves certain molecules in your body, and, you, and it gives you pleasure. It releases um, a sort of surge, yeah. and it's the it's the um, the order of the notes and the position of them that can release this surge of pleasure inside the listener. So it's a sort of alchemy. Um, I don't completely understand it, but it's it's sort of beyond complete logic. Yeah. Yeah, it just moves the soul somehow, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And then, um, so were you, did you start singing at an early age? Did you start like learning guitar at an early age or like just music in general? Or did you give it a little while? Well, my granny gave me a, g- a guitar when I was 20. I mean, when I was 10. Mm. Um, so I had a, my mum got me some lessons at first, but they I only had five lessons. <laughs> the, the money ran out. She couldn't, she didn't get me anymore. Right. Even though the woman said I was, one of our most promising pupils. Right. So for the next few years, I just played what I'd learned in those five lessons. Right. I'm not very good at teaching myself. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I'm pretty good now on the guitar. <laughs> it all comes with time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, and it's, you can't rush an oak tree. Yeah. And I think the hard, the longer it takes, it took me ages to, be, to get good on the guitar, but I, was, I loved it every day and played it. Hmm. And um, even though it's mostly just strumming it to begin with, yeah. But but now I'm really proud that I can play guitar. Whereas my son, you know, he picked it up in five minutes with a virtual virtuoso, <laughs> and it's sort of easy come, easy go. <laughs> he doesn't really value it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. So what was the um? So I take it you you sort of play guitar, learn to write songs a bit, and formed a band. What was your first band you was in? Um, Dennis and the Lapels. Wow. And what sort of band was that? Well, it was just sort of me at school. I made my mate make himself a bass guitar in woodwork. <laughs> um, I didn't know about music, but I could play really fast flurries of notes. So yeah. then it was all long hair and long guitar solos in the early 70s. Yeah. So I had no idea of a key or a... <laughs> so we just sort of jammed, me playing loads of fast notes and the bass just doing whatever he felt like. Yeah. So it wasn't a particularly musical band. <laughs> when you say he made a bass, was it like a skiffle kind of one where it was just a piece of string and a... like a? Well, no, he made a proper bass. Um, it was like Brian Jones' lemon drop sh- shaped. Oh. So, you know, he makes carves it out of wood and then, you know, digs the hole for the pickups and... Wow. No, it was a, it was a crude. I mean, no, it was, it was more the one up from a sort of um, skiffle broom handle base. I mean, that sounds amazing. I was just collecting conkers at that age. <laughs> this, this guy built a base. Well, hang on. We were, by then, we were 14. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's still really good for a 14 year old. That's amazing. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, what? Are it, was, you, it was a, a victory of. Um, Enthusiasm over ability. Oh, right. <laughs> That's fair enough. And what sort of music was you listening to around that sort of time? Was you into sort of Genesis and prog rock and things like that? We listened to... Oh, um, no, I didn't like Genesis. I liked the Rolling Stones. Oh, so you was listening to rock music. I and... wanted rock and roll. I wanted it hard. I wanted, you know, let's, let's, let's get it on. Genesis, no, no, just a load of hated Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> so you're mainly listening to rock and the Stones and bits and bobs like that, um, and then you had your little bands as well. That's brilliant. So did you play live with your first bands at all? 
Well, only once, and it was at the Leavers Ball at my school. Mm. And but the teacher turned us off after seven minutes. <laughs> so I got really angry. And anyway, to cut the long story short, we were expelled the next day. <laughs> no way! That's amazing. Oh, that's real punk. So that, it wasn't a proper, wasn't a serious band. Yeah, and I was the, only a kid. That's, oh, that's still fantastic though. Getting banned. That's real punk rock, even early. <laughs> it's great. Well, yeah, it, you could say that actually. Just do it yourself. Um, don't let lack of ability stop you. Essentially, you, but that sort of punk rock spirit. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's a kind of like British can-do spirit, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. So, um, when did punk start sort of coming into your life? When did you start hearing about punk? Well, I was at drama school, and I heard about punk. I saw a fanzine, right, and I immediately got it, right. And when it started up, but I was very busy at drama school. Um, it takes over the whole day, and you know, when you're there. Mm. But when it came up, my friends at drama school said, "Oh, look, Ed, have you heard about this Sex Pistols? They're copying you." Because I, I used to play my solo guitar at the sort of dances for the new pupils, mm. which is very undrama schooly, but I used to do it. And they liked it. And I was sort of modelling myself on a sort of surly Keith Richard type. Mm. So this is in 75, but I'm, I'm not claiming I invented punk rock. <laughs> but the thing, it was, it, it was in the air at the time. It would have happened even if McLaren and the Pistols hadn't give it a, given it a nice launch. Yeah. Yeah, they put a face on it, didn't they? So you signed to Stiff Records uh, and you released Old Bob, Dick and Gary, which is a fantastic album title. <laughs> what was it like recording the album? Was, that, was it a good album to make? Was it fun and exciting? Well, it, what? no, it wasn't. Because what happened was that's how he seduced us into signing with Stiff Records. Because mm. at that time, you know, lots of record companies were sniffing around Temple Tudor because we were hot, doing well, you know. Yeah. Filling out is all great, but he said, "How would you like to do a, a, a tour? Right, in a North a World tour, Europe and America." We said, "Fuck yes, please!" <laughs> so he said, "All right, the tour starts in three weeks, so you've got two weeks to make an album, hmm. and then we're off." Right. So we said, "Where do we sign?" But you can't make an album in two weeks unprepared. Yeah, so it's a dreadful album. I mean, we tried, but it was rubbish. The singing was awful. The mix was awful. But we were, we were straight on tour. We didn't, and then, you know, halfway through the tour, okay, lads, we've got it. here's your album. Yeah. And when I heard it, I thought, no. Oh, really? It was awful. It was like a tragedy, you know. I'd, I'd achieved my ambition of having an album out. And yes, it was in there. So I said, we, I said well, we've got to redo a lot of the vocals and stuff. So he said, all right, then. I said, scrap that. Mm. But he didn't scrap it. He went. He sent it the two thousand copies to Europe, right? And it's that's why we've never done well in Europe because it's really awful. I mean, you say it that. really is awful. I found it a really interesting album to listen to, though. When you get something like um, "There Are the Boys. no," the songs are all good. Yeah, it's just the first version. That your version's all right. Oh, I mean, okay. it's rough and ready, but nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I just I just think it's really interesting because it's got all that energy. And then you've got uh, like songs that sound a bit like the 50s, and then you've got soundscapes in there almost as well. And then you've got like your sing-alongs. Like, no, no, I love the album. I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud yeah. of it. But you know what I mean? When you do a song, you've got to have the right version. Yeah. I mean, because I love the songs, I didn't want Duff versions of them being released. See? Oh, I see. Right, yeah. It's about perfection, yeah. That's fair enough. It's all very important, you know, the mix, all that behind-the-scenes stuff. You can have 
seven loads of kittens worrying about, you know, the level of the bass or something. And um, you sort of did two versions of Wonder Bar. You did a, an album version, a single version. Was that your decision? Was that the record company going, right, you need to change it or... To change what? The versions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we thought we'd jazz it up for the single. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner and user of Mint Mobile. And I am recording this message on my phone. I'm literally on my Mint phone. Why? Because fancy recording studios cost money. And if we spent money on things like that, we couldn't offer you screaming deals. Like if you sign up now for three months, you get three months free on every one of your plans, even unlimited. Visit mintmobile.com slash switch. Limited time, new customer offer. Activate within 45 days. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Unlimited customers using more than 40 gigabytes per month will experience lower speeds. Video streams at 480p. See mintmobile.com for details. I prefer the single version. Yeah. Not everyone does. No, I think you're right. But I hate yeah. the song because it should have been called Fall About. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's much better. I changed it the last minute. Big mistake in my life. Let's not talk about that. It's too depressing for words. Fair enough. Yeah. And then did you get to tour the album as well? Or did they just sort of just release it and then you were doing your American No, tour? we were on tour when, they, when it came out. Oh, cool. And then we toured, you know... You know, if you're with a record company, you don't get a day off. Not one day off. Oh, really? They work. You're yeah. working every day. Generally touring. You know, they want to get their money's worth. Yeah. When you're on, when you sign up to a record deal, you're under the cosh. It's like being on a chain gang at the beginning, anyway. So yeah, we worked hard, but I like we know we like gigging, so we gigged and gigged. Um, and what were the gigs like? Were they crazy? No, oh, yes. <laughs> the rougher, the better. Well, I think that still applies. <laughs> what you really don't want is. A gig in the south, in the home in Surrey, right? <laughs> to those of polite people from good homes, I mean, it's just not interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not their fault they're from good homes, but they don't make for a good audience. Now, if you've got the Middlesbrough, where it's just so rough and violent and nuts, nutty, but those gigs are the best, and they people people wear their hearts on their sleeves more, so they give their all their joy and. They're more prepared to yell and scream and, and join in sort of thing. Whereas down south, oh, this is as bad as Johnny Good, isn't it? What? <laughs> and did people get it straight away or did you have the, the, the gig? Yeah, yeah, we were really nuts. Um, we were so full on. I was trying to make Mick Jagger look like he's standing still. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Which ended up looking a bit ridiculous at times. <laughs> Nothing is not comical. And we always drew the vintage idiot element, I have to confess. But everyone was welcome. We were determined to exclude nobody. Wow. And it was great going down around the land, you know, suddenly in the charts and everyone wanting to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. And what was your um, Top of the Pops experience like, given that you were watching it as a kid? Was it surreal? Was it brilliant? Oh, it's just a long, sort of, it's like filming. It's a long, tedious day and you've got to concentrate. Because you've just got to be ready to do several go-throughs for the lighting, for the costume, the dress rehearsal. Yeah. And then it's the actual take you know, towards the end of the day when you've been there since 10. Yeah. Wow. So you've just got to make sure you're good for that three minutes, man. <laughs> what I love as well is watching the footage as well. Uh, you've got, like, Bob Kingston dressed like a 50s rocker and you've got your chainmail on. And it's still out of the 80s as well. It's not even... It's, it's so crazy to look at as well. It's beautiful to look at. Just mashing up the oh, two Oh, man. Stars. Well, that look came about. Um, how did it come about? Well, McLaren was always saying, you know, you've got to create... Now, Vivian Westwood said, create your own look, be original. Yeah. And that heraldic stuff, I went to an old theatrical costume sale. They were selling off lots of old 
doublet and hose and stuff. Mm. And when I saw this sort of herald, heraldic fleur de lis and those lions and things, I thought that would be good for the image for the band, yeah. sort of cartoon heraldry. Because there was some talk of me being the rightful king of England <laughs> when we first started out. Yeah. Because McLaren sort of said, well, who are you? What are you? And I said, well, I, I can claim descendancy from Henry VIII. He loved that. <laughs> Direct descendant of Henry VIII. <laughs> Which is not actually true, but um, <laughs> it's, it's the some truth. Oh, I love that. So you know, it's a little bit of a game, and all these skinheads would come along saying I should be the, you know, it's all just fun, man. Punk rock was just such glorious fun. Yeah. And all these people are trying to make it too serious, like journalists yeah. writing about how it's a sort of reaction to all the strikes and unemployment and all this. They're sort of missing the point. So with something like Swords of a Thousand Men, was, the, was it written for the image or was it written just for the song and then the image came after? Well, we were on the side of Stiff Door, three months in a coach. We'd just been signed up. So after a while, you know, it's just like, well, it's the best sort of thing you can imagine. You play half an hour each night with four other bands in a rotating order. Mm-hmm. The rest is just, is, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll sort of thing. Yeah. But I did think it's my duty to, to write a hit song. If we've been signed up, the, the, the record company wants a hit record. So mm-hmm. I'd go in the little Carsey of the coach with my guitar, my acoustic, and just sort of start strumming. I thought, well, every hit song has a great rhythm. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's have the rhythm of um, Spirit in the Sky. I do, you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Norma Greenbow. So I was just strumming that, and that's what Swords was meant to be. Yeah. That rhythm. But, but the lads couldn't quite. So I just played the same uh, chords, which is just a 12 bar blues thing. Yeah. In B, trying to do the boogie rhythm. But I had no idea of the words. <laughs> and then at the end of the three-month tour, when we eventually got back in the rehearsal studio again, you know, it all came together, the tune, and we were la la lying over the, the words sort of thing. So yeah. we thought, well, this is a group. what we need is some words. What, what's it going to be about? Yeah. And then gradually, um, you know, the Grand Old Duke of York, that's, he had 10,000 men, you march him up to the top of the hill. And our local pub was called The Castle. Right. So the opening line of that song, deep in the castle, back <laughs> from the war. Well, it's deep in the castle pub, back from the tour. <laughs> and it all just sort of, anyway, the words wrote themselves, and that was a very successful record. But it just came easy. Yeah, it just, it just fell in. Apart from the three months of playing it. <laughs> I, I always felt like, like Swords of a Thousand Men, Wunderbar, and Three Bells in a Row were like a trilogy. It seems to be like a trilogy of singles. I think that's fantastic. Well, we spotted, man. Well spotted. Oh. Three bells in a row. That's our greatest song. Yeah? Well, I really like that. The version you hear is the, is the demo. It's one of the songs that we demoed to get the deal. Right. So we re-recorded it, but Stiff Records preferred the demo. Oh, really? Uh, the demo's much better. Just release that stick. <laughs> And the other thing he used to say is the stiff record was Dave Robinson. He's very annoying. He's just because you have a hit record doesn't <laughs> mean to say you're an artist. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so you've done the first album and then you've released the second one, Let the Four Winds Blow. Did they, were they eager to get you in the studio as quick as possible to get another album out or did you get to take your time with that one? 
No, take the time, you're kidding. <laughs> Suddenly, we, we had not had a day off, and he says, your new album is due in uh, three months, you realise. I said, well, how have we haven't even had time to write any songs, man? Right. It says on the contract. So that was written in a real hurry under the cosh. Right. And, it, you know, it was too rushed. You can't rush an oak tree. It should have had another, it should have had more time, you see. That's what I mean about getting the right mix. Yeah. There's some great songs in there, not developed. You can't rush an oak tree. But never mind. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's them's the breaks. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, when I was listening to it, it sounds like a more polished album in a, in a strange yes, way. It's the most well-recorded set of demos you've ever heard. Yeah, and it's got. It seems to have like bits from everywhere, like um, local animals, like discoy at the start, and then you've got like tonight's the night's a love song. It seems to be the most eclectic of the uh, of the two albums. Like it seems to be like inf- you can hear. Well, I never wanted yeah. to restrict myself just to sort of cliche up tempo rockers because after all, the Stones and my, the Rolling Stones it, it taught me everything, and you know they do disco tracks and ballads. Yeah, and I, I don't. And in the sixties, you had a ballad on a pop song. You know, I do love pop music. Yeah. And just to mix it up a bit, but tonight's the night, it's not quite there. It, the words don't make sense, you know what I mean? It, it needed more time. Yeah. But yeah. have you heard the latest? Have you heard Let the Four Winds Blow, for instance? Yeah. I mean, uh, Made It This Far. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. That's that's my favourite album, 25 years on. Yeah. All the all the songs we wrote since we were chucked off stick. Um, and then after that, you, you went solo. And like you were saying, you playing gigs with just a guitar. Hang on, hang on. No, oh. no. It's, you're making it too simple. <clears throat> then the whole band imploded far too quickly. We'd only had a, two or three hits. Yeah. It all, it was a horrible time. You can read about it in my autobiography. Mm-hmm. So that was eventually out on my ear. Then I got seduced into the um, acting world. Yeah. Because the, suddenly, because I'd been on Top of the Pops, Suddenly the doors of the theatre world open. Like, oh, this is not logical. Just because you can write a hit song doesn't mean to say you're a good actor. Yeah. And then I realised it's not really about being a good actor or a bad actor. It's just about who you are, sort of thing. Right. You know, showbiz is just whether you're flavour of the month half the time. So I got to get into acting and had a terrible time. It's the worst professional world. And then I got out of it. And then when... Then the Crystal Maze came along, and then the phone stops ringing when you do a game show. Really? I'm so glad the phone stopped ringing, because now I was stuck with nothing. Right. Because, you know, only around a couple of series, Crystal Maze. Yeah. So now, all I could do was play the guitar to get myself out the corner. I couldn't get a normal job, because my workmates wouldn't accept it, you know. <laughs> they just geezer off the telly amongst us. You know, they'd come to despise me. Yeah. You know, they like a happy ending. So that's what I did. I came out with my guitar and over 15 years built up a whole new circuit thing. Yeah, and are you happy doing that? Is, that, is this what you've wanted to do all along, pretty much? I do like aspects of it. Mm. I mean, people miss the weight of the band, but that means that I just say, well, you sing it all the louder. <laughs> and it's more getting them to um, do all the work, sort of like community singing. Yeah. So I do kind of like it, but... After 15 years doing it every week, I was getting pretty tired, so I was glad when the pandemic came along. Right. So then I could have a rest. <laughs> and so then I thought, well, I'll write me um, autobiography. Fantastic, yeah. Did you write any songs while you were in the pandemic as well to go with the autobiography kind of thing? 
Because you're writing like a... You see, that's the trouble. I, I, can't, I, wish, I wish this autobiography could be over because I can only think of one thing at a time. The answer is no. Right. But well, I have done a couple of gigs. Well, but that means you, use the pen, you forget pen and you just rehearse. Yeah. You're down in the studio two times a week. You know, that takes about four weeks out of the writing because you... Because this is a gig coming up, you can't think about writing a book. You, all you can think about is the gig. So you're practicing scales all day long. You're working out the set order. You're going down there at the studio yeah. so that you're at your best come the gig. Right. So you, you come the gig and you are at your best, but it's a bit. It's only a one-off. So it's a bit of a waste of time, really, because it takes the same amount of work for a one-off gig as for a, a world tour. So are you are you out gigging now? What are you up to at the, at the moment? I'm writing my um, autobiography. And yeah, I'm pretty happy now. That's fantastic. That's really nice to hear. <laughs> what made me happy was um, becoming a father, I think. Oh, that's a lovely thing to say. But, but let me just tell you the last chapter of the, of the Tempole story. Go for it, yeah. So then there's pandemic. I stopped gigging. I try and write my book. Mm-hmm. But then this year, it's the Let's Rock. They invite me onto the Let's Rock Retro. Oh, the festival. Sure. Which is a, in a, every a field somewhere in the UK every weekend. Yeah. With pop stars. It's the best tour I've ever done. Really? You enjoyed it? it oh, it was a massive stage, 10,000 people. Wow. Um, fantastic house band. And all these pop stars. It's water, and it's, it's people in the audience have mostly been in their 50s, yeah. getting a, having a few drinks and having a good old sing-along to all the pop songs they remember on the radio from their youth. Yeah. So I'm totally in, I can identify with that. And so I'm, I'm on, it, on the bill because I've had a couple of hits. Nothing to do with punk rock, nothing to do with, you know, anything really apart from... And that was such fun. I was on, one time I was on after Chesley Hawks. <laughs> what a mix. <laughs> the one and only. Oh, it's great. I mean, I was so excited. And you get these American pop singer birds past their pride, perhaps. They come up to me in their sequin dress and they say, do I look okay in this? I said, oh, you look lovely. I mean, who are they? I must check. <laughs> so suddenly I'm in the world of pop. Urban Cookie Collective, Sydney Youngblood, wow. Sonic. People I never would have listened to in the day. But of course, you know, they were my best friends. I was on an aeroplane with the real thing. Oh, wow. I love the real thing. Do you remember them? Yeah, yeah. They're brilliant. They're, I mean, yeah, great albums. Now that's glamour off the scale. <laughs> So I'm a bit more tending towards that at the moment, I suppose, Cumber. Right. Less interested in the rebel lever sneer. <laughs> more interested in the joy of, of music, I suppose. That's good. You just enjoy music. That's, that's wonderful to hear. That's just nice. It's lovely. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, good. I'm thank you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong at all. Um, Thanks for talking to me today. I'm really looking forward to your book. Good on you, mate. Cheers. This show is produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. 